Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. This is episode 125. Steve Krupa will not be on the intro with me, but he is conducting the interview. And it's a great interview with Arvind Rajan, the co-founder and CEO of a company called Cricket Health. Cricket Health is uh, looking to bring better care and efficiency to uh, folks who are suffering from late-stage kidney disease. Uh, they had identified uh, a, a sort of a gap in care for those patients. It seems as if they don't believe that they're getting the care that they necessarily need until, unfortunately, they, they shift into kidney failure and then dialysis comes into play. Uh, Arvind Rajin really brings it home with this uh, explanation of the problem. And uh, Cricket Health has a very interesting solution. So Steve uh, handles this interview well, as he always does. And I know you'll find uh, something very, very valuable in the conversation. These are the kind of stories we love to tell. One uh, production note, we uh, did this interview back in the fall, shortly after Cricket Health closed on a $24 million Series A. So you'll hear that referenced in the interview. So very happy to be bringing you this conversation between our host, Steve Krupa, and Arvind Rajin, the co-founder and CEO of Cricket Health. Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with Arvind Rajin, uh, CEO and co-founder, I guess, of Cricket Health. Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. Thank you so much. It's good to be here with you. I get that right. You're a co-founder, so you've got a buddy that you're doing this with, or are you doing it by? Yeah, we actually co-founded the, comp- the company with a couple folks. Terrific. Terrific. Um, so I, I, I guess it's we'll, we'll get into Cricket Health. It's on, on the kidney disease side of healthcare in a second, but... Man, I went to your LinkedIn page and it's cool. Like you've done, I like the electric car stuff, but that's not what the interview is necessarily about, but I could probably <laughs> talk to you about that for some period of time, uh, being a sort of a, a, a retired mechanical engineer. But, um, but you, but I think if I get this right, you know, my research tells me this is your first healthcare company. Is that right? That's correct. You know, actually, as it turns out, when looking back at my career, every single job I've had has been in a brand new industry. Yeah. So um, it's been an interesting journey, and it's been a, it's what's been interesting going coming into healthcare has been that most of the fundamentals in every business I've been in are the same. I mean, healthcare has some new wrinkles and, and new concerns, and there's a different pace in healthcare than other sectors. But a lot of the reality of building a business, motivating people, and having everything come down to talent remains the same. So was there a a what was the spark? Right. So every 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 company gets founded. Uh, through some some idea or some piece of momentum that causes the founders to say, "Hey, let's let's go build a business around this idea." Well, there must have been something that led you into the healthcare space. What what, what was it? Well, in 2014, I had left LinkedIn. I guess I was semi-retired, or at least was taking a bunch of time off to think about what, if anything, I wanted to do next. And after six months of really just focusing on spending time with my children and my wife. I said, okay, it's time to think about what's next. And, you know, the advantage of taking that amount of time off, it gives you an opportunity to think about what's important to you and think about where the times in your life where you've been most excited and engaged in work. And as I thought about that, I realized that while even at the time, while I didn't appreciate it, the times that I felt I did my best work 
uh, or when we were tackling something incredibly hard. So I said, okay, I want to tackle something really hard. And then I said, if it's going to take time away from my family, which in the end is the most important thing in my life, it needed to be something that would have a transformative impact on the world. And that was it. That's all I cared about. And then turned out that uh, Vince Kim, one of my co-founders, uh, he and I um, met at a kindergarten camping trip. And Vince had been a healthcare VC most of his career. And we began talking about problems in healthcare. And I realized, well, this would many, in many ways satisfy everything I was looking for. So we decided to start a company, and we began looking in a very different part of healthcare. But it was sort of six months in when we began learning more about kidney disease, realized that was a far more interesting, transformative opportunity than what we were doing. So we essentially hit restart and began again, and that was almost exactly three years ago. You got to tell me what the original idea was. I can't let you off the hook on that. Yeah, well, you know, it wasn't too different. I mean, we were really interested in in the movement of care outside of the hospital and increasingly into the home in areas where you could have the greatest impact on both patient outcomes and the cost of care. And so we were interested in looking at different places in healthcare where that would apply. We began by looking initially at acute episodic care, not because we were sure that was the right business, but it would give us some practical experience delivering care to the home and we could launch pretty quickly. But when we learned more about kidney disease, we realized that's a very different population. The impact could be significantly uh, more um, uh, larger than what we, were, what we were currently focused on, but it was gonna take us time to figure out the industry, the model. We realized it wasn't all about care in the home, and there are many different pieces to a really broken systemic problem in the way these patients are managed. And so we said, you know what? That's gonna take time to figure out Let's begin from first principles. Let's really understand the market, understand the dynamics, and really begin working with stakeholders all across kidney care, from nephrologists to people in the dialysis world to payers, to really come up with something that we think could track, tackle something of the, the magnitude of the problem. And so um, that's what we did. For a long time, they've been talking about moving dialysis into the home. And I know there's a lot of tools to do that, a lot of machines that now can be operated by. Home dialysis has been around for a long time. And, you know, it's something that, the, that both commercial payers, but also Medicare has been very interested to in see happen because patients on home dialysis live longer, they feel better, there's a lower, they spend less time in the hospital. So there are a lot of reasons why dialysis in the home is better, uh, but despite the best efforts of payers for the last seven, eight years, we've sort of hit a plateau of about 11 to 12% penetration of home in the U.S., and that compares to some markets like Hong Kong where you're at 80% home. Uh, so that is, in fact, a big issue in this area, but in many ways, that is really just the tail end of a really broken system. So the reason why all these patients end up in in-center dialysis is because of what happens well before dialysis happens. And so we came to the view that the only real way to solve the dialysis problem is to really to begin by solving this progression of kidney failure where you can get patients well before they go have to go on dialysis and making confident informed decisions and getting them to different pathways. So that's kind of the business we've built and are now, you know, we showed that we could impact sort of the hardest parts of that broken system. And now with this round of funding, we're going to be building essentially what for lack of a better term, is a full-stack provider of kidney care. Hey, everyone, this is Tom. Pardon the interruption. Just wanted to uh, invite you to subscribe to another podcast we're putting out. It's called Healthcare is Hard, podcast for insiders. It's uh, hosted by Keith Figlioli. He is a partner at LRV Health. And uh, 
Keith brings uh, an extensive uh, network into this podcast. He's had some great conversations with the senior leaders at uh, groups like Premier and Intermountain. And uh, he really is delving into the issues and the, and the hope of innovation at, at, a, at a senior level at these larger healthcare institutions. So it's a great compliment to the Breaking Health podcast where we focus on startups and, and, and entrepreneurs. This is looking at innovation at a higher level. So I uh, encourage you to subscribe to Healthcare is Hard, a podcast for insiders. Now let's get back into this conversation. In order to be able to do what you're describing, you've got to understand the progression of kidney disease. So maybe you can take us through that. Um, you know, obviously, end-stage renal diseases are the people that end up on dialysis, whether it be in the home or in a dialysis center. Um, but but what's happening? Where if you're going to prevent it, you've got to see it coming, right? So how what what tools have you? Are you applying, and how are you interacting with the healthcare system in order to accomplish what you're trying to do? to get to kidney failure. So kidney disease, one of those diseases that's actually rather common, but surprisingly not discussed very much. Uh, 17 million adults in the United States have kidney disease of some form or the other. Uh, and then in some, in some ways, the problem is not as bad as that sounds. I'm, I apologize, not 17 million, 17% of adults have some form of disease. So it's a pretty big problem. Now, for most of them, they're never going to advance very far in their disease. So They'll get to maybe stage two, stage three kidney disease, and they will get no worse. And because kidney disease is, for the most part, almost completely asymptomatic until the very late stages, most of these patients will never be meaningfully impacted by the fact that they've got kidney disease. The problem is that once you get to stage four kidney disease, which is basically 30% kidney function, at that point, it's a one-way street. You are going to end up with kidney failure typically in the next one to two years, some cases even six months, or you're going to die before you get there. And at the start of stage four kidney disease, still 60% of these patients don't know they have got kidney disease. So, that, so there's a problem in identification of the population and then also in risk stratification of the population to know which percent, who are the patients at these early stages are going to be the ones that progress. So that's sort of system problem number one. The second problem, though, is that even if these patients are identified, there's almost no intervention that happens because practical reality is, although there are well-proven models in the literature that show that you can slow progression and improve the lives of these patients, there's no money in it for most nephrologists. So a typical nephrologist may make $500 a year off managing a late-stage patient, when that patient has kidney failure and is on dialysis, that same nephrologist will make between $3,500 and $10,000 a year. And it's not because they don't want to do the right thing. They do. But the reality is, as they're managing a practice, you know, they end up going to where they can, they can actually keep their practice alive and be most successful, and that's in kidney, in kidney failure. So for most patients, at the stage of their disease, when they are at a 20% more annual mortality risk, they're getting about five minutes of time from their nephrologist every few months. And so patients don't understand what to do. They're terrified. They're isolated. Uh, they are getting a bunch of information going over their heads. They think their life is over. And during this phase, they're in and out of the hospital because 
no one is really watching these patients really closely. And then if they're, if they're lucky enough to be told that they have some options of what to do when they get the kidney failure, that might be in one of these brief five-minute conversations. And imagine you're a patient, you're given this devastating diagnosis. And it may be something you've been afraid of for a long time because you may have had a family member that was on dialysis. And you're told, oh, by the way, you can go to a center where everyone does everything for you. You just have to show up. Or you can do this on your own alone at home. Well, that second option sounds terrifying. So most patients, even if they know they have options, don't actually even remember it. In fact, two-thirds of them say they were never even told they had any options besides in-center dialysis. And then finally, uh, half of them start dialysis by crashing in the emergency room. Uh, 80% of them start unprepared. You know, ideally, a patient who starts dialysis has surgery done to create an access point to, through which you can do the dialysis. That's either a, a catheter installed in their abdomen or an AV fistula in their arm, which allows you to have, um, begin as an outpatient in a prepared way. Only 20% of patients start that way. 80% of them start with a central venous catheter, a catheter going right into their heart. And so it's not surprising they are not choosing home. And so it's sort of this completely broken system problem. And beginning at every one of these levels, then part of what um, I mentioned of those about those financial incentives come from the dialysis companies, because the dialysis companies are required to have a medical director who's an outside physician. So they hire nephrologists as their medical director and pay them between 80 and 150 grand a year, typically. And then they typically also sell joint venture interests in their clinics to those nephrologists. So nephrologists have a financial interest in the, in the place they send patients. And, you know, again, a lot of them may not have thought they'd be doing this when they got out of fellowship, but often what they're told when they leave a nephrology fellowship program is the only way to survive is to go get yourself a medical directorship and a, and a JV. Typically have to buy your way into the JV, and then you're locked in for a decade or more. The, the first piece is a pop health question, right? You know, identification and stratification. Um, which I think I think you probably can do in a pretty straightforward way, but then you've found this group of patients. You've got, not surprisingly, a a, a set of uh, you know um, misaligned incentives in the economics of healthcare, at least at the provider level. Um, but you're saying to yourself, well, I've got these people before they're in in you know their late stage and on dialysis where quote, all the money is, and frankly, all the pain, inconvenience, and awfulness is for the patient, right? Um, how, do I, how, do I, how do I get to them and finance an intervention, and who's going to pay for it, right? Isn't that, the, isn't that your business problem? That's correct. And so, it, so the, first, uh, the first piece of the, of the story is we're a provider. So we employ nephrologists okay. who manage these patients. So we... we work with payers and, um, and really you know, help them find these patients. And we are then a provider in their network, a, a specialty care provider. And when we hire a nephrologist, we tell them your, your main priority is keeping patients from kidney failure. That is the mark of your success, not getting patients on dialysis. They've got no incentives to get patients to, go, to get sicker and exact, the exact opposite. And so one of the things that we worked on over the last few years was building a scalable program to then where we would deliver care, multidisciplinary care, 
along with the nephrologist to keep these patients out of the hospital and get them better prepared. And so we spent all of 2015 and 2016 building this program and then intervening with patients to see whether it would work or not. And that involves for every single patient, they have a dietitian, a social worker, a pharmacist, a nurse, also a nephrologist, and then a trained patient mentor who is further along in their disease. And also they're part of a community of patients who are going through this experience together. And we deliver, at least when they're at stage four and into stage five, most of that online and remotely. Now, when they get closer to kidney failure, and are preparing for dialysis. Also, that also then includes in-person care as well. And so what we do is we go to a payer and say, uh, we will provide, we will be a specialty care provider in your network and we wanna take on this patient population. And so our customers are both payers, but then also health systems that have provider-sponsored plans because we need a customer who cares about the overall cost of care. Otherwise, there's no incentive to use programs like ours. And so the value we're providing to them is not only better patient outcomes, but significantly bending, bending the curve of cost for this population by effectively intervening more aggressively earlier and then managing them all the way through downstream. Are you going and taking a capitation payment to do this? You, and, and if you are, um, how is the, um, if it's, whether it's a health plan or a provider-owned plan, or I would imagine even an employer at some level, but, but thinking of a risk-taking entity, how are they determining that it's it's the right time for you to sort of intervene and take on that population? Because clearly, you're, it sounds like you're taking them in 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 the many stages of near late stage kidney disease. Is that the way to think about it? I think that's correct. Right. So we, we don't take on all patients. So what we tell our customers is, for most patients with kidney disease, they don't need our intervention, and those patients should stay primarily managed by PCPs. And so we first begin, again, by the first step of identifying and risk ratifying the population. And that's an area that where our chief medical officer, Carmen Peralta, has really built most of her career at UCSF, is in building better models for finding this high-risk population, then building intervention programs for them. And so that's the first step. Now, we say, again, typically for even stage three patients, for 80% of them, we don't need to do a thing. We don't even see the patient. We provide support to the PCP, but they stay in primary care. And then for that 20% that is stage three and all stage four, five patients, we had them en enroll them in our program. Um, and so where we want to get to, to get back to your question about capitation, where we want to get to is taking full subcapitation across CKD and ESRD. So if I tell a payer about it, for every patient, let's say stage three B and beyond, you're going to pay us a fixed amount of money. Well, then I make the most money by far delaying kidney failure. The worst situation for me is a patient in a dialysis chair. And so we're truly aligning the best interests of the patient, the payer, and us, the provider. Now, we're a little too small right now to take on that level of risk at the beginning, but that's what we want to get to with a payer. And I should also mention most payers aren't ready to take that step yet. So we begin with a model where we have um, – where our incentives are aligned around the same way, but we're not taking on full upside-downside risk. But that's where we want to get to over the next three years or so. What have you worked out and are the, are the care protocols that you're using um, proprietary or are they amalgamation of, of, of different forms of care? How have you figured out how to and, – and, and have you collected – so sort of a three-part question. 
and have you be, been able to collect some population data that suggests that if these this this type of population is under your watch, if you will, the um, the clinical outcomes are better and the costs are lower. Yes. So the so short answer. So the last question is yes. So getting to kind of the care <laughs> the <last> protocol. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but but the but but what what I yeah yes to everything no. Um, I, I guess what I would say first of all is that the, the the care protocols and programs we do are almost completely uncontroversial. And one of the things that we when we go in and talk to a payer, especially if the chief medical officer is in the room, and we say this is what we do, everyone around the table goes who's clinical goes oh yeah that's the right thing to do. The problem is almost no patients currently get that level of care. So we modeled our CKD intervention program off of not only established clinical guidelines and, and care protocols um, that are national and international, but also then specific programs around the country that are doing this approach. For example, at UC San Diego, which has the first joint commission certified CKD clinic in the country, we began collaborating with them to see how they've made their multidisciplinary care program work. And so what I would say is that the, the clinical protocols we use are, again, almost completely uncontroversial, and they're not proprietary. We're not saying there's some magic sauce in terms of the actual clinical care we provide. I think the thing that has made our program really successful has been that it's not just about clinical intervention. It's also about psychosocial intervention for the patients as well. And so, and that too, you know, there have been plenty of studies in both the kidney literature, but outside of kidney care, showing the value of patient communities and psychosocial support in improving clinical outcomes. So we began testing this approach. So we built a clinical care model off of established practices, but wanted to see whether you could deliver this in a scalable way online for a population that have the socioeconomic and demographic characteristics of a kidney disease population. And to be honest, we weren't sure what the results were going to be. You know, we hoped it would work, but we weren't sure. And so we began uh, not only a clinical study at UCSF, but a bunch of pilots with customers around the country. And we took on a population that, if anything, was slightly sicker and older than the average age of someone starting kidney failure. And we began working with this population over the course of sort of from Q4 2016 through 2017 and still today. And we, we found a few things. One, we were able to break through with almost every single patient that we enrolled. Our engagement rate for this population was about between 90 and 95%. Second, that while many of these patients came to us with some level of denial and fear where they weren't willing to engage, we were able to find ways of breaking through with everyone. And we were able to get to the point that now patients who get enrolled in our, in our program over the last close to two years now, a little over 70% of them are choosing to go on to home dialysis rather than in-center dialysis. Another 4 or 5% are choosing to go on no dialysis or choosing conservative care. And only a quarter are choosing to go to in-center dialysis. Second, we have been, we've shown that the population, this population we're managing as they've transitioned to kidney failure, that they're transitioning as outpatients 93% of them are starting dialysis outside of the hospital compared to 20% overall in the country, in this country. And well over two-thirds of them are starting dialysis with, with a permanent access as opposed to a central venous catheter. So, and, and what makes us feel really good about those results is in many ways, there's almost the exact same results shown by some other 
studies that have been done around the country where you've got lots of clinicians focused on the problem. So these CKD clinics that have been world-class, they throw a lot of bodies at the problem to get to these same kind of results. And what we're really pleased with is we've done all the same results, but in a model that's far more scalable because we don't just use clinicians. We use patient mentors, we use the patient community, and we use highly personalized education and, and some social things that, I've, that we've learned how to do very well from past lives to get to the same kind of outcomes. So that makes us some promise that we can scale this program at a more aggressive level. Very cool. Do you have papers that people can read on this? Is, is it published? So we, we, we have a paper that's just been submitted uh, for uh, publication yeah. uh, from the, the study that we did at UCSF. It's going to get published this year. There's also a, a paper more on the cost side of what we're doing. I think the, the study will be complete in November. I think probably by February we'll be ready to publish some results out of that. Um, so I think we feel, but I think what, what we've, um, I think the reason why we, we've been able to raise the round of funding that we did has been the results we've shown. And, you know, we're, we're not sharing this publicly. We're definitely sharing the results with our, with people that we were working with. Yeah. Congratulations, by the way. It's, it's, it's no small feat to raise, you know, 20 plus million dollars. I think it was 24 million. Did I get that right? Um, yeah, that's right. Just that's recently. Right. So fresh, fresh off the road collecting money and it's always a big event for uh for for a young company um so i we're, we're coming up we're coming up against our time here this has been very very uh informative where are you doing business where where are you guys working right now i know you're in san fran but where, where are you finding your customers yeah so we're actually talking to customers all over the country right now so um, kidney disease is a nationwide problem and so we're not limited by geography most of the work we've done to date has been on the west coast and uh, but uh, I would I wouldn't be surprised if over the next year we'll have deployments in several markets around the country, and that includes not only virtual care model but also on the ground clinics, and 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 uh, clinicians as well. Well, great. Where where else can uh, listeners find out about you? I know you've got your website. Are you um, blogging, tweeting, podcasting? What's going on? Our, our CMO Carmen is, it ends up tweeting more than I do, and but it is the website. And um, and the one thing I you know I always put a plug in here, our business is gonna is gonna uh, rise and fall based on talent. So the big mo- all I seem to do these days is interview people. Yeah. Um, bringing in great people, f- not only from within kidney care but outside of kidney care, who either often because they have a personal connection to this disease, or really want to be something part of something truly transformational. So. Uh, please, if anyone's out there and, and wants to be part of an exciting journey, um, reach out to me. That's great. That's great. Well, good speaking with you, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Good talking to you. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us on the Breaking Health Podcast. It would mean a great deal to me, Tom Salemi, if you could uh, tell others about the podcast, text it to them, email it to them, share it on social media. It's a great way to helping other people find the podcast. You could also subscribe yourself if you haven't done so already. And of course, uh, if you are listening to us on iTunes or any platform that allows this sort of thing, give us a ranking that does help others find the podcast. Finally, reach out to me if you have any thoughts or questions. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom, or you can email me, Tom at healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. That's it. Tune in next time. We'll have another great tale of innovation for you on the Breaking Health Podcast.